Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Grab a seat along with me as you enter into the smartest doctor in the room. Today's topic is going to be about an adrenal alert, unveiling the powerhouse of the glands hidden threats to our health. In my practice in New York City, I see a lot of complicated cases, as a lot of the listeners know, especially with chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, and after reviewing a patient's extensive history, I tend to search for conditions that may have been overlooked by other doctors, such as infections or especially uh, endocrine or hormonal imbalances. I particularly pay attention to um, issues regarding their adrenal gland, whether it's functioning properly or malfunctioning. This is something in the field uh, in internal medicine of endocrinologists, but they don't seem to be as interested in this. It seems like it gets overlooked. They tend to focus a lot on thyroid and, uh, and diabetes. Um, and the adrenal gland, as I will discuss today with our guest, is really critical for handling acute and chronic stress. And who doesn't have a lot of that these days? Dr. Tobias Carling is an outstanding surgeon who specializes in adrenal disease. He worked for almost 18 years as the chief of endocrine surgery at Yale University. And in 2020, I guess right around the pandemic, opened up in Tampa, Florida, the Carling Adrenal Center. I fortuitously found out about Dr. Carling from actually a patient I was seeing in New York. I was going through her extensive history and she mentioned to me you know, that, you know, she had these crazy symptoms of her blood pressure not being controlled and she was dizzy and sick and went to many doctors. Eventually, they did find out that she had an adrenal tumor, which we'll get into, and uh, went to the Carling Institute because she heard Dr. Carling is the best at this. So um, I'm really excited to have him on the podcast and like to welcome Dr. Tobias Carling to the smartest doctor in the room. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm, I'm uh, honored to be part of this podcast, and I look forward to talk about uh, adrenal tumors and adrenal diseases and the normal and abnormal adrenal function right. uh, with you. Great. I thought we would start, it's a little bit of a multi-layered question, because uh, a lot of you know patients don't really know a lot about the adrenal gland. So maybe you could tell us a little bit where they're located anatomically and, and why they're important to our health. Yeah, so the adrenal glands, so you have two adrenal glands, the left adrenal gland and the right adrenal gland, and they're about the size of a fortune cookie, so a few centimeters, but they sort of sit almost like a little hat uh, on top of each kidney. So the left adrenal gland on top of the left kidney and the right adrenal gland on, on top of the right kidney. They have nothing to do with the kidneys, that's just the location. So as but their function is that they overproduce or, or they normally produce hormones that control our body. So that's sort of the field of endocrinology. The field of endocrinology is, is the field of hormones and hormone-related uh, diseases. So you can have overproduction and underproduction of these hormones, and that can make you sick. Um, in many cases, you have one organ and one hormone. So that's true for the thyroid gland produces thyroid hormone. There's a couple of different thyroid hormones, but for, for simplistically, it just produces thyroid hormone. Uh, the parathyroid gland produces parathyroid hormone. 
but the adrenal gland produces multiple hormones. So I guess in that way, it's sort of similar to the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland produces different hormones. But the adrenal gland produces four major types of hormones. Um, and it, it um, consists of two layers. It consists of the cortex, which is the outer layer, and the medulla, which is the inner layer. And the cortex produces three hormones, so it, or types of hormones. So it produces aldosterone, cortisol, and then sex steroid hormones, meaning uh, testosterone, androgens, uh, estrogen, those kind of hormones. Um, not to very large extent, uh, that's mainly produced by the female and the male uh, uh, sex organs, but can produce and overproduce some of those sex steroids. But then you have the medulla, and the medulla produces adrenaline-type hormones. We often refer to those as catecholamines or metanephrine, normethanephrine, but they're really derivatives of what we call adrenaline. And I think most people when they when they hear the term, you know, your adrenaline is rising, they have a pretty good idea what what that means. Yeah, so stress, right? Stress seems to be the big one. I mean, there are a lot of things, but uh, I mean, obviously, exercising, you know, anything that um, you know can sometimes get your heart rate up. But uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I want to just ask you one quick question though, because that really fascinated me. You were telling me about the anatomy part. Um, with the adrenal glands, because I try to explain to my patients, as I said, because a lot of them, you know, they know where the thyroid is generally, you know, and they know kind of where their kidney is. Uh, so I start to explain to them what, like you just did about the adrenal gland. But the question I wanted to ask you, do you think the location of the adrenal gland sitting on top of the kidney um, has no relevance? Uh, you know, just, I mean, don't you find it interesting that it's, it's in that location? And my other question was, because again, thyroid conditions are, are commonly seen. Do you think the adrenals and the thyroid have a more interconnected relationship than people typically pick up? And that's a double, yeah, double think, question there. Yeah, that's that's a multi-layered question. And I think you can think of it as um, they can be re related in their symptomatology, right? So symptoms can be similar, but they also can be related from a genetic point of view, because we know of some genetic diseases that that affects both your multiple endocrine organs and and the the physiology. But in terms of the location, um, why the adrenal glands are located exactly where they are, um, yeah, that's, that's yeah, it's a mystery. A good, okay, good question. I think we're gonna have to have that question asked when we get to heaven one day. Maybe. Okay, but, okay. You know, because <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know. You know, why why would the thyroid gland be in the neck as opposed to you know, in the leg or something like that. Or well, I just thought it began, but, like you're saying too, with the adrenals, like sitting literally on top of the kid. Yeah. It's like, they're not out in space somewhere else that, you know, and my, my other thing, because I'm, I'm just tossing this out. This is more from my interest than maybe the listeners, but also like a lot of times when I'm always worried about autoimmune disease, you know, and like the thyroid, we see a lot of Hashimoto's yeah. thyroiditis in my practice. And I'm always still like wondering in my mind, because a lot of these patients are fatigued and sometimes you're still correcting the thyroid. But I always wonder like, could the adrenals be affected as well? It's another endocrine organ. You know, it uh, it's just harder to pick up. You know, people order less of those tests, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, just to finish the thought yes, about sure. the location, I, I would say, which is interesting, is that the adrenal gland is, is located in the retroperineal space. And as I mentioned, the adrenaline 
hypormas are produced by the medulla, which is the inner core of it. Interestingly, you have similar medulla-like cells all along the retroperineum. So if you think of the major artery in your body, your aorta, you, you have these deposits of those similar cells. Oh, so you wow. can actually develop pheochromosatoma, which are the adrenaline-producing tumors outside the adrenal gland. So most commonly right. it occurs in the adrenal gland, but it occurs all along the aorta sort of in the retroperineum. So I think that's sort of an interesting thing from an embryological point of view. But when it comes to the autoimmune diseases and and hypothyroidism and problems with the thyroid gland, it, it certainly is true that patients that have one autoimmune endocrine disease, such as hypothyroidism, what we'd call Hashimoto's thyroiditis, when you don't have enough thyroid hormone production because your own immune cells attack your thyroid gland. That certainly goes at a higher frequency with other autoimmune endocrine diseases, such as type 1 diabetes, but also what's called adrenal insufficiency or Addison's disease. So from an immunological point of view, we certainly see a link of more autoimmune diseases that occur in a single patient, but also genetically in, in families. And if you will, the flip side to that, when you have tumors that overproduce too much hormone, we certainly have a number of genetic conditions where patients are predisposed to develop tumors in the pituitary, in the pancreas, in the adrenal gland, in the thyroid gland, and the parathyroid glands. And um, exactly why those specific genetic conditions occur in, in those specific um, endocrine organs is, is, is a little bit unknown. But, but there's you, certainly both a genetic and immunological connection there for sure. Well, you know, something you pointed out really important, and I think hopefully the listeners will take this home, it's super important because you really got my attention, is that, you know, when, you're, when the doctor's taking a good medical history, it's important to know, again, from what you're saying, that whether your parents, a close relative, a sister or brother has had, you know, one of these endocrine type of tumors, uh, because again, you're going to have a higher likelihood not to scare somebody, but it's, again, that's kind of, you know, if you're having also very unusual, and we're going to get into the next question about symptoms that, um, you know, that could help guide a doctor to start looking deeper um, into the possibility. So yeah, the next question I really wanted to ask you, as I mentioned in the introduction, adrenal gland dysfunction is overlooked a lot. And I'm sure by the time they get to you, it's been years or it could be a decade. What are the symptoms in general and any specific ones that you think, um, you know, a patient should think about uh, that may be suspicious of an adrenal disease like a tumor, you know, things that you do, you know, work on all the time? Yeah. So um, the, the symptoms are going to be slightly different dependent on what hormone is being overproduced. So it's really the hormones that's driving the signs and symptoms. Uh, so we'll get into- We are, we are going to get into it specific. I just, I wanted, I was going to give like an yeah. example, like, you know, for example, like, and I know you know this and we're going to get into this, like, like hypertension, which is a yeah. common condition in today's society, but can be very much a hallmark, uh, you know, in, you know, certain, certain uh, specifics about it that can be due to an adrenal tumor. You know, but obviously most people yep. that have hypertension don't have adrenal tumors, but 
you wouldn't want to miss that one, I don't know, in a thousand where they're not responding to medication. So that that's what I, want, I meant, you yeah. know. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, they're, they're slightly different, but as you correctly identify, the one of the hallmarks that, you know, the most common overall uh, sign or symptom that patients have is high blood pressure. So high blood pressure is um, is a big deal when it comes to this. Uh, and as you, again, correctly identify, a lot of tumors get missed because the typical practitioner, when they see a patient with high blood pressure, is not really to go and investigate why the patient has high blood pressure but rather to start treating it with medications. And we, I see patients every single week when in retrospect, they've had the adrenal tumor that's been the driver for their high blood pressure for a decade, two decades, three decades. And now they have you know, heart attacks and strokes and atrial fibrillation all caused by this adrenal tumor when it could have been diagnosed 30 years ago. So I would say there, and there's some good guidelines which is not being followed, but there are some good guidelines uh, that anybody who has high blood pressure that runs in families at a young age, less than 50, difficult to control if you're on more than one blood pressure medication. All those patients should be screened for an adrenal tumor to make sure they don't have an easily curable uh, problem for their or cause of their high blood pressure. Yeah, that's a great point. So, like you said, a lot of doctors, and it's not their fault, but like general doctors, they see a patient, oh, you're hypertensive, you know, but even though they look at them like, you're not that overweight or whatever. Oh, my, everyone in my family has high blood pressure. Would you recommend something like, I know you mentioned some of the papers that I saw, you know, from your website and like looking at the sodium and renin, you know, like certain lab tests. That's that's what I'm, I'm really asking. Like, how, how do you go a little bit of layer beyond that, you know, that, that a good doctor and a patient should be aware of, you know, to be their own advocate to say, look, maybe, you know, there's another cause of my blood pressure. I'm eating healthy. I exercise, but I just have high blood pressure. Yeah. So the, we, we definitely want to screen for these adrenal tumors in patients that have high blood pressure, especially if you don't have any obvious risk factors. As you say, if you're eating well, you're relatively healthy, you're not 350 pounds uh, or something like that, uh, you know, you should be screened for these adrenal tumors. And fortunately, it if it's relatively easy to screen for them because there's just some simple blood tests. So just not to get too detailed, but you can have aldosterone producing tumors uh, that cause high blood pressure. And the way you scheme for that is you measure the aldosterone, which is the adrenal hormone, and another hormone called renin. And often those type of tumors also go with low potassium. So if you have low potassium and high blood pressure, you absolutely need to be screened for an, uh, an aldosterone producing tumor. Uh, that's also called Kohn's syndrome. or Right. Pain. Yeah, we were going to get into that. But you bring up a good point in one of the papers I was looking at, and I was also reading some cases before I prepared for this podcast. You know, what's tricky is, though, again, a lot of times a patient who's got hypertension may be on a diuretic like hydrochlorothiazide, which can lower your potassium. So, again, what's your little tricks for that? Like, how do you, again— suspect, um, do you have to look, does, does the aldosterone and the renin probably not affect it as much as the potassium in those particular patients? Exactly. So in, in, in that scenario, the, the, there are some blood pressure medications, specifically spironolactone and 
a pleuronon that will affect the aldosterone levels, but they they will affect it downwards, meaning even if the patient, so all other blood pressure medications don't really affect aldosterone, renin, and the ratio. So you can you can easily check aldosterone and renin in a patient who is on a diuretic, and you can trust those data. Uh, if the potassium is a little bit low, but your aldosterone and renin is normal, well, then you can safely conclude that the low potassium is due to the diuretic, not to an uh, adrenal tumor. But certainly if you have the combination of low potassium, high blood pressure, and your aldosterone is high and the renin is low, uh, that sort of proves the diagnosis. Any other symptoms, you know, besides the hypertension or signs besides the hypertension that really a lot of times you see in these classical cases or even, I guess, some of the unusual cases? Because I know you see it all. So what, uh, like, what, like, really, like when you look back and say, gosh, I wish the doctors had known this five, seven years ago because they would have gotten the patient to me sooner. Yeah, so, so definitely high, you know, high blood pressure, but it's not only the high blood pressure, but it's the nature of the high blood pressure. When you see very high blood pressure, what we call a hypertensive crisis, often, often it's due to an adrenal tumor, meaning the blood pressure goes up you know, in the in the low two hundreds, if you will, and then uh, then it's the it's sort of the nature over time. If you have this episode, it's a very high blood pressure, and then in between it normalizes. So you have what we call this spells, meaning this episodic, occasional symptoms where you're feeling your heart is racing, you you can almost feel like your blood pressure is high, you might start sweating, you might have tremors, um, you might uh, you know, almost feel faint. Those are symptoms that we see in a lot of uh, adrenal tumors, both adrenaline-producing tumors called pheochromosatomas, but also in aldosterone-producing tumors. Would you see, Dr. Carling, also, again, you know, and I like to do this with my patients when we're getting a history, is there anything that also will be like an almost like a hallmark stimulus, meaning, I mean, I'm just gonna throw out an example. Let's say if they drank a lot of coffee or alcohol or something that really would bring out the tumor, like you said, make it being from slightly dormant, or, you know, to bring out these spells or crises. Yeah, I, I would say that that's still rare, but sometimes, uh, you know, th those that you mentioned are classic ones, meaning caffeine, alcohol. Interestingly, uh, in some cases, especially for pheochromosatomas, the adrenaline-producing tumors, just the patient going to the uh, bathroom and having a bowel movement, increasing that intra-abdominal pressure by straining can precipitate one of those uh, attacks or spells. Oh, that's important. That's important. Sometimes some, you know, strong um, cheeses like blue cheese and stuff like that that are uh, sort of on the spicier side can also precipitate. Why, why would they do that? Just any, any particular reason? Just curious. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure to no, be no. honest. Okay, okay, yeah. it's just good to know. Blue cheese induced pheochromocytoma. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's go into then the diagnostic testing. I know you were mentioning some of it, but I want to ask you about a couple of the specific hormones. You know, I order these all the time. Again, I said you put for a slightly different reason. I'm usually not looking for adrenal tumor. I'm looking for an adrenal gland that's fatiguing or failing. 
because uh, I'm concerned about it. I feel it gets missed a lot. Uh, yeah. They said these are important hormones that are hard to measure. You have to measure them, as you know, at a certain time early in the morning to get the most accurate things. So tell me a little bit the tests that you're also looking at, meaning things like cortisol, aldosterone, ACTH, you know, in the blood and what you're looking in the urine. Um, you know, before, look, and you're a surgeon and I can tell you're a good surgeon. So before you're taking anybody to the OR, I'm sure you want to have a pretty definitive diagnosis that this is what you're going to find. Yeah, absolutely. So, so again, it depends a little bit on the, on the scenario. I'll give one scenario, you know, based on sort of the symptoms and then one based on, on a scenario where the patient already has an adrenal tumor, because interestingly, which is sort of different from what you're dealing with, with adrenal fatigue and Addison's disease is that a lot of patients nowadays have a CT scan for another reason. And lo and behold, there is an incidental adrenal tumor that's found on the scan. That's what we call an adrenal incidentaloma. So this patient might go to the ER, they were involved in a car accident, or they get belly pain, right. they get a CAT scan, everything is fine, except they have this incidentally found adrenal tumor. And in that scenario, you need to check for those three uh, tumors. You need to make sure the patient doesn't have an aldosterone-producing tumor, cortisol-producing tumor, or an adrenaline-producing tumor. Um, so to, to measure the aldosterone, um, you, you check the aldosterone level, the potassium, and the renin. So classically, aldosterone-producing tumors will have high aldosterone and low renin. Uh, the cortisol, um, so you can have adrenal cortisol producing tumor. That's actually the most common tumor that we operate on. These are patients that have what's called adrenal Cushing syndrome or subclinical Cushing syndrome. And we can dig in to that a little bit more because a lot of people get confused between Cushing syndrome and adrenal causes and pituitary causes, causes of, of Cushing syndrome that's called Cushing's disease. Okay, so let me, uh, let me ask you actually a couple of quick questions on this too, because I find this really interesting. Um, with the, um, oh, with the ad adrenal producing tumors, you know, the, a lot of times, you know, with the labs, it's very, again, I think that's what throws doctors off um, because the ranges that you get from even the very good labs are not accurate. Like I'll, I'll give you again, the one thing that I see a lot, let's say, you know, when you're, when I'm looking at the adrenal fatigue issues with patients, it's like if they have an aldosterone of three or five, the blood, you know, the lab test will say that's still in the normal range. And they're like, unless it's right. like zero, but it's not. I mean, that tends to be very low. So on the contrast to that, when you're looking at tumors, I think sometimes they'll say, you know, I don't remember. I don't know if it's greater than 20 or something. You, you know better than I do. But when, when should a doctor or the patient be concerned, uh, you know, as far as with the um, aldosterone level being a, like, a, again, a primary aldosterone tumor or something like that? What? Yeah, you, I mean, you make, you make an excellent point when it comes to interpretation of lab values. And you're absolutely correct that a simplistic mind will look at the lab and it's either within or outside the right. normal range, right? right? Well, unfortunately, life is not that simple. And that's why you need to take a holistic view and look at the whole picture when it comes to the lab. So, uh, and, and we'll talk a little bit about Cushing's more, but with aldosterone, you're absolutely 
Correct. So the, the upper normal range is 28 of, of the aldosterone mm -hmm. in, in what's called the plasma aldosterone concentration. The majority of patients when, with an aldosterone producing tumor have numbers that are within the normal range, meaning in the upper normal range. So, so as you mentioned, you know, you're a little bit worried about a low aldosterone, but it's technically in the normal range because you're worried about not enough aldosterone production, exactly. right? It's absolutely true. On, on the flip side, meaning most patients will have an aldosterone level that's in the upper normal range. But that's why you have to also measure the renin. So, so it's almost um, useless to interpret a single aldosterone level without having... So the ratio is very important, is what you're exactly saying. Exactly, a complement uh, yeah. renin. So you want to divide the aldosterone by the renin. And if that, that ratio is above 20 you're very suspicious about Okay, that's very important, by the way, because like I said, you know, one of the things I also, I do check with my patients that have hypertension, you know, I'm checking their adrenal and the renin actually comes from the kidneys though, correct? Correct, so, yeah. that, so the renin is a, is a kidney hormone, but they, they sort of function as an interplay of each other. So that's in the, in the same way, when you measure the calcium in your body for parathyroid tumors, it's sort of useless to check a calcium without having a parathyroid hormone level. Right. Um, and and it's the same thing with aldosterone. It's sort of useless to check the aldosterone without checking the renin. Well, maybe they figured out why they're so close to each other now again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Somebody yeah, thought about that, right? They, okay. <laughs> All right. I won't get the Nobel Prize for this, but... Uh... Um, and what about the ACTH? Now, just so for our yeah. listeners, because I have to, I like to explain this to them. So the ACTH, as you well know, is produced by the pituitary, which is within the brain. And that's like the pre-signal to uh, the adrenal gland for all their, all their different hormones, correct? So yes. what concerns you, if you don't mind me telling me again too, with the ACTH? Like, I don't know, the levels, because again, a lot of times too, I mean, is it very important to do an early morning ACTH like the other adrenal hormones? Is there a number, again, or a ratio that you're looking at? Because, again, sometimes, again, it looks high or whatever, and it means nothing, you know, again, without the context of how it compares to the other numbers. Yeah, so so I'll, I'll give a little context to that to that question. So this is, has to do with cortisol production and and the, you're absolutely correct. The ACTH is sort of the pituitary hormone that has the overall control of cortisol. So, for instance, if you have uh, an, a, but but again, you you need to look at the holistic picture. So, there's about ten different ways to measure cortisol. And if it was one perfect test for everybody, there would only be one test, but there's about 10 different ways to measure it. And that tells you that they all have different sensitivity and specificity. So, so when it comes to Cushing's syndrome, which is, uh, so Cushing syndrome is sort of the umbrella term that describes the signs and symptoms of having too much cortisol. Yeah. The most common reason patients have uh, Cushing syndrome is because they're on prednisone. Right, exogenous steroids, right. Right, so it's an exogenous steroid. But when it comes to uh, endogenous Cushing syndrome, meaning tumors that cause Cushing's um, syndrome, you can either have a pituitary tumor that overproduces ACTH, or you can have a 
adrenal tumor that overproduce cortisol, or you can have some rare cancers that overproduce very high ACTH. So the ACTH level we use, because if you have a cortisol producing adrenal tumor, the ACTH level is gonna be low because you have a negative feedback of the tumor in the adrenal gland telling the pituitary to shut off the ACTH mm -hmm. production. Right. Conversely, if you have what's called Cushing's disease, meaning you have a pituitary tumor overproducing ACTH, the ACTH is gonna be very high. So in our context of diagnosing Cushing's syndrome, that's the first test I wanna look at. Is the ACTH high? Well, probably the problem is in the pituitary. If the ACTH is suppressed or low, uh, and the patient has Cushing syndrome, the problem is going to be in the adrenal. So that's sort of how we use the ACTH. So we talk about ACTH-dependent Cushing's, which is the same as Cushing's disease. There's a lot of technicalities here, but it's very important. ACTH-dependent, the problem is in the pituitary. Right. ACTH-independent, the problem is in the adrenal. And those those are the patients I see. And then once we sort of establish that, we want to establish, do the patients really have Cushing syndrome? And we use two major tests for that. One is what's called a 24-hour urine-free cortisol, meaning the patient collects the urine for 24 hours and we measure the cortisol level in that. Or what's called a low-dose dexamethasone suppression test, which is a test where the patient takes a low dose of dexamethasone in the evening and if you have a normal physiology, the next morning when you check the cortisol, it should be pushed down very low, less than 1.8. So if you fail, what we call fail to suppress, meaning your cortisol level is still on the high side in the morning, meaning higher than 1.8, that's when you have Cushing syndrome. A lot of patients get confused by this. No, it's confusing. I, I was reading it the other night because I have these like uh, case reports and Obviously, for you as the surgeon, this is extremely important. You don't want to be going in and trying to find an adrenal tumor that's not in the adrenal, that, you know, the tumor's not there, it's in the pituitary, when one of your colleagues who's a neurosurgeon would definitely be more um, ready to, to deal with that problem. The other thing, too, for the listeners, I, I always find this to be helpful, uh, and especially even when I was in medical school, like they would give you like famous people that had diseases. And uh, one of the classic things from looking at photos is it was always thought that Babe Ruth, the famous New York Yankee home run king, uh, had Cushing's uh, disease or syndrome. They don't, I don't know if they knew which one, but, but looking at pictures of him, just for, again, our listeners, I mean, the classic things about his appearance, because it was a little unusual. He had a very broad, what they would maybe call a moon face. Um, he had obviously a very large torso and everybody thought it was from just eating a lot of hot dogs and drinking beer, but he probably had a lot of abdominal fat from the Cushing's. And he also had very skinny legs, which was, it looked funny. He just, you know, for being an amazing athlete, he didn't really look like an athlete. So those are some of the things that you see in patients too, that you, you know, would, would obviously get your attention. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So patients that have too much cortisol, whether it's produced, whether the problem originates in the pituitary or in the adrenal with Cushing syndrome, definitely have that moon faces. Uh, a lot of people get, um, you know, adult onset acne, uh, they can get this, what's called a buffalo hubs, hump, sort of a fat deposit on their back. And then what we call truncal obesity. So, so fat that's sort of in the, in the apple shape, if you think of the metabolic syndrome. Right. 
And cortisol is very toxic as a hormone. It's very bad for you. And one of the really bad effects is that it's catabolic. So it breaks down your your muscle. So that's why they often have very skinny extremities. So oh, often skinny arms and legs. Um, so on, on the on the website, adrenal.com, you know, we have some pictures both of, of actual patients, but also uh, schematics that sort of explain what they look like. And and again, the the cortisol being a very toxic hormone, when it's overproduced too much, it can cause uh, thinning of the skin and 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 the patient uh, bruises very easily, and they have difficulty with wound healing and and so forth. Why? I just had a curiosity. I was thinking this the other night too, as I was reading up on this. You know, we know that in, in adrenal insufficiency, or what you, we called Addison's disease, which is what they thought President John Kennedy had, um, they have low adrenal hormones. Uh, but they have a high ACTH because, again, there's the absence of that talk about the feedback. But they get hyperpigmentation or like or Kennedy had like that darkish like tan it looked like. But why don't they get that in uh, – I guess it's the Cushing's um, syndrome, you know, when it's coming from the pituitary. They, they have high ACTH. Why? How come those patients don't have hyperpigmentation? Yeah, that, that's the great – that's a great question, and and that has to do, do with the degree of the ACTH elevation. So if you have Addison's, um, if you have Addison's uh, uh, disease, or if you have an ectopic ACTH-producing tumor, your ACTH level is super high, and that's why they cause cause that hyperpigmentation. Uh, in pituitary tumors, the ACTH is high, but it's not that's so high, high that it causes that hyperpigmentation. Oh, interesting. You know, because again, as a clinician, I'm always, you know, you, know, you want to be like the Sherlock Holmes and at least, put, <laughs> you know, do the physical diagnosis and put the pieces together, you know, to do that. Um, all right, let's talk, you know, before we go into your surgical stuff, because I want to get to that, I mean, the amazing stuff that you're doing. And I saw some of the photos on your website, which we'll, we'll send patients to after. You know, one of the most interesting probably tumors when you're a medical student is the pheochromocytoma. You know, it's like, uh, you know, if you ask a medical student, you know, why does a person have this high blood pressure and flushing and diarrhea and this and that too, they, they would pop out right away, pheochromocytoma. <laughs> and then, you know, you, you go 30 years of practice like myself and I don't think I've ever had one patient that's had this. <laughs> so what is with those? Are they still relatively rare tumors? Um, what should doctors be thinking about? I do see, it's funny in my practice, like I see again, unusual cases, but some of it is dermatological, like with flushing and reactions. So again, it's always like in the back of my mind, but what usually gets your attention or is the patient like fairly worked up by the time they come to you with the uh, with this diagnosis? No, I mean, we, we see all comers, you know, so some patients that have, you know, uh, uh, you know, full workup and, and sometimes uh, patients that are not uh, worked up well. I think it helps to just know, you know, because it's a tricky word uh, for the patients to know the origin of that name, pheochromocytoma. Uh, so it's P-H, pheochromocytoma. And it comes from the Greek and pheo means dark. Chromo color, mm. cyto is cell, and oma is tumor. So it literally means dark color uh, cell tumor. And that comes from the fact that one, once you remove these tumors, uh, the, the cells are dark. And they actually sort of turn uh, dark as I'm removing them from the sort of an oxidation uh, effect. So that's what the fear chromosotoma is. But these are just fascinating 
tumors and fascinating patients because uh, these tumors arise from the medulla, so they overproduce adrenaline-type hormones. So uh, if, if, for instance, you get scared, right, uh, you have a normal release of this adrenaline hormone. So you feel your heart beating, your blood pressure goes up, you, uh, you might start sweating, uh, you get tremors, you're all shaking. Well, these patients have tumors that overproduce this to 100 to 10 times, 50 times, 100 times all the time. So, and as I alluded to before, sometimes there can be some precipitation uh, events that cause this, what we call spells. So often these patients have these spells that might last for two to five minutes and, and it can be very, very uncomfortable because one of the classic signs is that patients have this impending sense of doom. They literally feel like they're just going to die right now. That's yeah. how uh, the extreme cases feel. Um, so they are not actually as rare as we previously thought. Um, the ones that have very significant symptoms and very overt sort of the classic textbook cases are less common. But if we look at patients where we, where again, when we get back to this adrenal incidental loma, if we, we have an incidentally identified tumor and we screen those patients, almost about 5% will have an, uh, a fear chromosotoma that's undiagnosed. But I think the most important thing for clinicians to know is uh, that A, this these tumors are not that common. It's pretty easy to check for them. So if any patient have this sort of rare symptoms or signs with high blood pressure, uh, the, the heart is racing, almost this panic attack symptoms. We see a lot of patients that have been diagnosed with psychiatric diseases that, that have an underlying pheochromosotoma. So these patients can pop up in in psychiatry and in internal medicine by the cardiologist and the you know my practice analogy uh part of the, my allergy practice I, I would get a lot of referrals for flushing and then i used to work that up right do you see that i think i think do they get though is it called a dry flush or a wet flush i forget which one the field chromosome uh, it's usually a drier flush so, so yeah. what happens is when the catecholamines go very high first they get this pallor so they can Sometimes you look at them and they, they look like they're almost dead. They're right. so pale. They're so white in their face uh, because of the vasoconstriction um, that they almost look look dead. But then once that the vasoconstriction releases, then they flush and then they turn red. So they might go from looking very white and then looking very red uh, type of flushing. Oh, that's good. So, if, so yeah, so certainly in those... Uh, you know, if patients present with flushing, you know, it's certainly very easy to check those adrenaline type hormones in, in the bloodstream or or in the urine for that matter. Okay. Let's move on to the key part of one of the reasons also I have you on. As I said, I had a patient that went to you from New York because they heard about you. What are you doing for these patients that's unique uh, in your uh, I think you mentioned minimal invasive <laughs> surgery, if that's possible with the go yeah. somebody's system. So, yeah, so what, what kind of surgeries so are you doing? Yeah, so so this this was one of the opportunities and the reason I left. You know, I, I was on the faculty at Yale University for many years, and we had a great practice there. But what we were able to create down here in Tampa, Florida, was the first and only 
hospital for endocrine surgery in the world. So it's a oh. full-fledged hospital only for patients with parathyroid, thyroid, and adrenal wow. tumors. Wow. And um, go and and now we, we for adrenal tumors we do by far more adrenal surgery than any place in the world. But that's true for parathyroid surgery and thyroid surgery too. So my so there's 11 surgeons, full-fledged hospital, and all we do is take care of patients with these tumors. And for adrenal tumors, uh, we do this state-of-the-art operation that very few surgeons in the world have experience with, but I do you know, up to six to eight of these operations in a day. And that wow. operation is called the mini-back scope adrenalectomy. So the traditional way people will do this operation is either through big incision through the belly or laparoscopically through the belly. But the problem is the adrenal gland is located behind the belly in what's called the retroperineum. So if you operate through the abdomen, you would have, have to move the bowel, you would have to move the spleen, you have to move the liver, you have to move the pancreas just to get to the adrenal gland. Right, right. The beauty of the operation we do, uh, the mini-back scoperolectomy is just three small incisions in the flank, and then we stay right behind the abdomen in what's called the retroperineum right on top of the kidney. And in, in that scenario, in a slender patient, this operation can be done in, in 10, 15, 20 minutes. And it's wow. I have to ask you not to take away any business from you. It's like with me, people always ask me some of the things that I do that are unusual that help patients. Why aren't more doctors, you know, even in top specialty places doing that? It seems to make sense to go through the back than go through the bowel. Yeah, so, so the average number of adrenal operations done by American surgeons is one per year. Wow. So if you do something once once a year, wow. you're not going to be very interested in learning something new Got right? it. because you, you barely feel comfortable doing it the traditional way. And, uh, and the way, and adrenal surgery, unfortunately, is spread out on a lot of subspecialties. So you have urologists do it, you have general surgeons do it, you have oh, wow. surgeons do it, surgical oncologists. Um, you were trained uh, as a general surgeon, I presume, right? Yeah, so my background is in general surgery and then I've done extra That's training in, in endocrine surgery. So uh, the endocrine surgeons are the ones that, that do these operations the most, but it's still very spread out. And wow. uh, the you know all surgeons are are trained to you know because they train doing gallbladders and hernia operations through the front so then just getting used to the anatomy uh from behind and it's it's technically a little bit uh it must be challenging you know, do you just out of curiosity because you know so many things now too like so do you have the patient um laying on their stomach when you're doing the surgery or right they, yeah or so sitting up i don't know you know it's yeah, no. So, so they lie in 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 what we call the prone position. Prone position, so right? Sort of supported, lying on 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 their tummy, almost similar as a spine operation, frankly, uh, where people lie sort of in this uh, lying position on their stomach. Do the patients like you're saying? You know, you get done fairly quickly, which usually is good for surgery. Are they able to go home the same day? Do they have to stay a few days in your hospital? Is the how is the recovery period? Yeah, so so typically in a normal size patient operation takes about 20 to 30 minutes. We do have them spend the entire uh or spend one night in the hospital. And the reason is, as we talked about, often 
you know, high blood pressure. Is yeah, this is an endocrine things. organ. This is not just like taking out a piece of tissue, you know, regular non-functioning right, tissue, like a muscle or, or spinal tissue. This stuff is used to producing hormones and being very active. Right. right? So they often come in with very high blood pressure and then that normalizes overnight. So we want to sort of see that trend for at least 12 to 16 hours. And then, okay. um, and, and then, we talked a little bit about this before, especially with Cushing's patients. We want to make sure that the other adrenal gland produces the correct amount of cortisol afterwards. So we check that the next morning. So one night in the hospital, recovery is pretty quick, meaning they're up and around, go for walks, take a shower. Uh, we tell them not to go to the gym for about two weeks after the operation. And most of the time, these tumors, it's usually one-sided, right? I mean, you're not typically doing both sides, so you have to worry about... Yeah, that, yeah, that's 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 a great great question. Um, so there's certain genetic diseases, uh, for instance, genetic pheochromosotoma, which is about twenty percent of all pheochromosotoma. You can certainly have tumors on both sides, but in the vast majority, we only operate uh, at, uh, on one side at a time. Okay. Um, any cases that come to your mind that were just like, uh, as we would call a fascinoma? Sounds like a pheochromocytoma, like anything like where you were like, wow, you know, because like when you just heard the person's history and the story, you're like this, I got to write this one up or, you know. Yeah, well, we, we, we've had quite a few, you know, one one was a recent lady who flew down from Connecticut who was pregnant and had a pheochromocytoma. And that's, that's a big problem. Uh, fortunately, we were able uh, to remove her pheochromosotoma during her second trimester. She did great. The baby did great. And, and that was a great, great success. How did that um, get picked? You know, because sometimes, obviously, even in pregnancy, women can have like a hypertensive crisis. So how was that picked up? And especially with all the hormones going on in a pregnancy, like, how, you know, who was a student enough to say, hey, there's something weird going on? Was it the pressure was not being controlled enough? Yeah, so she had very label uh, uh, blood pressure and, and, and she was actually quite slender. And this was early in the pregnancy and, and had a, a, a ultrasound. Usually ultrasound is not that good for adrenal imaging, but in this particular case, it was picked up uh, that way. Um, another very fascinating case was was a recent patient who had um, in the same adrenal gland had one tumor overproducing aldosterone and a second tumor that was overproducing cortisol. So the patient had both Cushing syndrome and Kohn's syndrome, meaning it, primary. Is that very uncommon to have like? You know, yeah. So, so usually you have one of the two. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very rare that you have uh, two separate tumors in uh, in in the same patient. So uh, that that's certainly an interesting one as well. All right. So the last thing I'm going to ask you before we conclude, any tip of the day for our patients or our listeners about if they're you know have any concern that maybe this is from their adrenal glands? Any anything to keep in mind? Yeah, I would say three things. Number one, if you ever have a CT scan, read the reports yourself, uh, meaning it's not uncommon that uh, patients have an adrenal tumor. Nobody tells them. Yes, you know, that is, that's so important. I'm sorry to interrupt you. That is so important. My wife who works in my practice, who's, she is like better than any super lawyer doctor. When a lot of times she's reviewing reports from prior 
uh, doctors that have ordered. And she's looking at it and she's like, oh, did you know you have a, this is a small size, but you have an adrenal tumor, <laughs> you know? So, okay, that's that's really important. Yeah, so, so read your, your reports. reports. <laughs> uh, and, and, and frankly, sometimes it's not even mentioned in your own report. So if you can get, you know, the actual <laughs> images of your okay. own scan, that's helpful. Uh, if you have any signs and symptoms suggesting an adrenal tumor, definitely bring it to the attention of your doctor and just say, you know, I have all these symptoms. I have high blood pressure, but my potassium is low. Can you please check, uh, make sure I don't have an adrenal tumor? And if you're interested, I think there's a lot of information on our website. It's excellent. Yeah, we're going to mention that at the end. Yeah. That can give you uh, uh, treatment. And 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 be be persistent uh, because uh, you know doctors are all busy. They you know you might come into doctor and you have you know ten different diagnoses. You have high you know you got hyperlipidemia, you got diabetes, you got weight gain, and so forth. Uh, there's so many things to address for a doctor. So also have some you know compassion with the doctors. You know we don't want to bash you know especially primary care doctors. Right. That work no, absolutely. Them. No, they got their um, hands full. Agreed. Well, Dr. Carling, you know, this is one of the reasons I do the podcast, to find the smartest doctor or surgeon in the room, because I think it's so important. I mean, there are a lot of good practitioners out there, but some people, when you keep on seeing the most, we've learned this all along in medicine, when you see the most cases, when you do the most of it, you become hopefully quite good at it. And that obviously usually you know relates to a, a really good outcome. So maybe can you tell our listeners more where they can find out about uh, the Carling Adrenal Center um, and your work? Yeah, so the easiest way to find us is is just go on the website adrenal.com, uh, just adrenal.com, or you can just search for me, my name, Dr. Carling, C-A-R-L-I-N-G, and you find us uh, very easily. We, we have a pretty significant presence uh, on both on social media, Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. And there's some very good educational videos uh, available both on the websites as well as on, on those uh, channels. Um, so I think that's a helpful resource. Great. Again, thank you for your time. This was terrific. <laughs>